Welcome to the Lex City Church Podcast. To learn more about the ministries of Lex City, please visit LexCity.Church. Well, welcome to week one, week one of part two, however that's going to work, of our series on the book of, of Revelation. And over these next four weeks, I'm going to try to hit four big themes that kind of close out this book and I hope things that we can learn from there. I, I could probably spend 12 more weeks on this. Such a fascinating book, so many things to learn. And so in order to help that, uh, if, you, if you're not aware, we have a weekly podcast. And over the next few weeks, I'm going to put some supplemental material uh, in that podcast dealing with the things that we're talking about here on Sunday. Also want to invite you, if you go to lexcity.info, there's a place for you to ask questions. And if you have any questions related to... Uh, to the study of end times, please submit those, and uh, we'll try to get those answered. The hard ones, I'll send to Tammy, and if they're easy, I'll answer them there on the podcast over the next few weeks. And so glad you're here to be a part of that. So as we jump into that, the, this study, the study of eschatology, right, the, the study uh, of end times, I want to remind you that as we think about this topic, for us, it's a secondary doctrine. And here's what I mean by that. There are primary doctrines, uh, things like salvation by faith right? Inspiration of scripture, the, the virgin birth, things that we would say, this is what makes us Christian. This is what makes us orthodox. These are things that, boy, we'll plant the flag on the hill saying these, these are the things that we don't compromise. Those are primary doctrines. But there also are secondary doctrines where things that we can have differing opinions and disagree on and still be brothers and sisters in Christ. We, things could be like uh, our, our view and interpretation of uh, the works and the, of the Holy Spirit in our lives, different modes of, of baptism, that could be there, and on and on different things. And so as we start this, I just want to remind you, as we look at eschatology, the study of end times, we really see it that way as a secondary doctrine to what it is. And so just a principle I shared with you earlier, simply this. In essentials, we have unity. In non-essentials, we have liberty. And in all things, we show grace and love. So that's the context. So as we jump into this, though, I do want to give you some of just my presuppositions that interpret how I'm going to share and how I interpret the book of Revelation as we begin, so you kind of know where I'm coming from. First one is simply this, that the book of Revelation is, is a letter. Uh, chapter 1, verse 4 tells us that John is writing a letter to actual churches in Asia. And this is important because as we think about the book of Revelation and interpret it, we're reminded this, it is written for us, but it was not written to us. And so it's important for us to understand the context of who it's been, re been written to in order to have greater understanding of what it means. Because one of the things that we love to do, right, especially in a Western culture, we love to insert ourselves or our Western ideology into the context and try to interpret things through that way. But I want to remind you that this is not written to the 8th Church of Lexington. It was written to seven actual churches. So it's written for us. We will learn a lot from it, but it was not written to us. And in light of that, it cannot mean to us what it didn't mean to its original readers as we interpret the scripture along those things, all right, as we go. The second thing, as we jump into this, is we use, let me give more church words today, our hermeneutics, our ways that we study the Bible. I want to remind you that we need to study the book of Revelation in the same way that we would study the book of Matthew or the book of Genesis, right? 
Many, when they get to the book of Revelation, they want to treat it like an allegory, like a story, and yet we want to interpret the rest of Scripture literally. Can I just encourage us to apply the same principles to it? Because my struggle is this. If we take Revelation and treat it as an allegory, then what keeps us from treating Genesis like an allegory? What keeps us from treating Matthew like an allegory? And certainly, if we're not careful, all of a sudden the flood is just a story, and the cross becomes symbolic of something that wasn't that's there. Do you get the idea? So here's encouragement. We've got to give Scripture normal interpretation unless the verse or the passage clearly indicates that the author is using figurative language. In other words, we're going to read it like we would understand it as we go that. We're going to let Scripture interpret Scripture whenever we can, and we want to avoid the natural tendency, because it's fun, to look for hidden meanings and over-spiritualized meanings to everything that's in the book. All right? So in all these things in mind, one last one, and we're going to jump in today. I want to remind you again as we look at this, that God has a unique relationship with the nation of Israel. God has a plan for the church, but he has a unique covenant relationship with the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel, that the city of Jerusalem, referred to as a holy city, are central to God's plan for this world and for the purpose of the tribulation, right? So we're going to see today, it's really cool, in Revelation chapter 12, we're going to see all of these principles that I just shared with you kind of played out, and they're so important to keep in context because it will help us gain understanding into this book. So remember the book of Revelation is written to actual churches, the seven churches, and John's writing this, it's kind of interesting, in the middle of all this uh, things of what's going to be happening in the days to come, John writes this to him for a really important purpose. He says, listen, church, I want you to be reminded. I know you're facing persecution and struggle and difficulties. And John wants to remind the church that the source of these struggles is not simply man, that there is a dark spiritual powers that are at work. That the battle that they have is not simply against flesh and blood. And so as they interpret the difficulties of the world that they are facing and are about to face in the last part of the tribulation, be remembered that there is something darker, spiritual powers that are at work. So that's where we're going to head today. So if you've got your Bibles, if you would, join me to Revelation chapter 12. If you've got your phones, you can go to lexcity.info. If you're new, all the sermon notes are there, ways to stay connected. Also a place where you can uh, put questions into the podcast. That will be helpful. Revelation chapter 12, amazing book, uh, amazing chapter. And there's lots of symbolism here in Revelation chapter 12. And remember this, that the power of symbolism is that it sparks something. It ignites some emotion in us. The word pictures, they, they fire us up. The challenge we're going to see today is trying to find the meaning within that symbolism that's there. And so here we go. Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out with birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them on the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child that he might devour it. She gave birth to a child and was caught up by God to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she was to a place that was prepared by God in which she was to be nourished for 1,260 days. Well, that's as clear as mud. 
Been a good morning. Let's close in prayer. What in the world have we just read, right? We got a woman. She's giving birth to a child. This red dragon's trying to kill this child, and God's protecting the baby for three and a half years, and the woman for three and a half years. What, what does this mean? Here we go. So let's start it this way. Let's interpret three main characters that we see, right? We have the woman, we have the child, uh, and we have the red dragon. So here's the first question. Who is this woman who's clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet? This is an important one because how you interpret this, there's been a, a fair amount of different discussion. Roman Catholicism, uh, Mormonisms tend to say that this woman, well, this must be Mary. Those that would treat the book of Revelation as an allegory tend to lean to the idea that this probably is Mary, that the woman that's here. But let's go back to this principle. Let's let Scripture interpret Scripture, right? So this phrase, sun and moon and 12 stars, only appears one other time in the entire Bible. And it's all the way back in the Old Testament. Remember a guy with a fancy little coat named Joseph? And Joseph had these amazing dreams. Well, look back at this. Genesis chapter 37, and we'll see this phrase. Then he dreamed... <coughs> Excuse me, another dream. <coughs> Sorry, I was choked up about this coat of many colors. <coughs> I tried again. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers. And he said to him, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told this to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? Here's the point. When Jacob, Joseph's father, heard this dream, Jacob wasn't thinking, well, Joseph, you must be talking about the future mother of God, uh, of Jesus. Rather, jo uh, Jacob said, man, you must be talking about our family, right? That the sun was Jacob, the moon was Rachel, and the stars were his sons, who, which would become the 12 tribes of Israel. This crown, this imagery of the 12 stars on, on her head, represented, again, the nation of Israel, which we'll see is going to be consistent through the rest of the book of Revelation as we go. We also see that throughout Scripture, Israel, the nation, is referred to as a woman, a mother, a pregnant woman giving birth. And so, again, if you interpret that the woman is the nation of Israel, I think we'll find that that's a consistent interpretation all the way across. That certainly is the way that Jacob understood these phrases way back in Genesis 37. Second character, Revelations chapter 12, verse 3. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns on his head were seven diadems. So who's the red dragon? Again, let's let Scripture interpret Scripture. We're at verse 3, slide down to verse 9, and it gives us the answer. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. And he was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So the dragon is Satan, the deceiver of the world. Thirteen times in the book of Revelation, we're going to see the interchanging where Satan is called the dragon. Now, when he's called the dragon, can I just remind you, this is not a physical description of what Satan looks like. It's a description of his moral character, that he is a deceiver, a conniver. We'll actually see a little later, we get a physical description of what he looked like. So we have the woman, we have the red dragon. Now the final question, who is the child that is born? Verse 5. And she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Most would agree, right? The child is Jesus. 
the ruler of the nations. The child who is born will become the king who reigns. Isaiah chapter nine tells us that. So we have three characters. We have the woman, the dragon, and the child that's born. So where did the conflict between God and Satan happen? How did this start? And how is the nation of Israel wrapped into the struggle that's here? If you've been around church a while, you may ask a very, well, wasn't Satan actually an angel at what time? So how did we have this conflict? Well, verse 4, chapter 12, kind of gives us everything back to the beginning. So let's put some context to that. Angels, it's amazing. They share a characteristic with us as humans. In fact, the fact that we are both created beings. We are immortal, but we, not, we are not eternal. We will never die, but we didn't always exist, right? We, were, we are created beings that's there. That's important because certain religions begin to, certain religions worship angels as a god. And can we remind the Bible teaches pretty clearly that angels were created beings. They are immortal, but not eternal, the same as us. So when were angels created, if they were created? Well, in the Old Testament, the book of Job gives us some insight into that. Remember when Job was frustrated with God? about the things that were coming against him. And Job basically questions God. Go back to Job's 38, and I'll just put it on the screen. He says this, and God responds to Job and gives us some insight. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who determines its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or what was its basis sunk? Or, or who laid its cornerstones? When the morning stars sang together, and all of, here's the key, the sons of God shouted for joy. The, the phrase sons of gods is one that refers to angels many times. And so the angels were present somehow at the foundation of the earth. Genesis chapter 1. First day, second day, third day of creation, I, I don't know. But we know in Genesis 1 that, that they were present because they saw the foundation of the earth. We also know about angels is that angels don't procreate, right? There's a set number of angels. Now, we don't know the exact number of angels, but Scripture in multiple places says there was thousands upon thousands of angels that were created at this moment. God created these angels. We also know this, that these are powerful, amazing creatures that God created with incredible strength and power. Second Kings chapter 19 tells of a time when the angel of the Lord killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers while they slept. So all I didn't do, this is not a precious moments little angel with a harp. All right, these are amazing. 185,000 soldiers killed in one night by one angel that was there. So creatures with immense power that's there. Another distinction, so let me give a couple more. Another distinction of angels that make them different than us is angels had a one-time decision that sealed their eternal state. One decision angels made that determined their eternity. Now, sometimes we know this. Between Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, when the Lord looked at all that he created and he said what? It is, it is good, included angels. All was good. Somewhere between Genesis 1:31 and Genesis 3:15, we find the Satan as a serpent deceiving Eve in the garden, right? Sin at some point had entered in the world. Somewhere between Genesis 1 and Genesis 3, we have a rebellion that takes place. Actually, the first sin ever committed was not Eve in the garden. The first sin we'll actually see was Satan when he rebelled against God. Isaiah uh, chapter 14 tells us this was what Satan's problem was. This is the pride we're going to see that rises up in Satan that causes him to come against God. Isaiah 14 says, How 
You are fallen from heaven, O day star, the son of dawn. How you were cut down to the ground, who laid the nations low. Now this is what the Lord said. This is what happened in Satan's heart. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Can you hear the pride? This is what happened in Satan's heart. His hubris, his pride began to get so great. He looked at all that God had created, because he was there for that, and said, I ought to be the object of this worship. I mean, Satan's this classic example when your talent, your beauty, or your charisma exceeds your character. I mean, Satan was an amazing thing. Ezekiel chapter 12 tells us that God called Satan the signet of perfection. Think about that, the signet of perfection. When he was created, the Bible describes there in Ezekiel, all of the precious stones that were available in the garden is what he was made of, beautiful all the things that were magnificent, that's what covered him, they said in his outer thing. He was the anointed guardian cherub. Satan was beautiful and powerful, and he sat in a place of high honor. Ezekiel chapter 12, verse 15 says this, you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. And when his charisma trumped his character and his pride began to roll in, here's an amazing thing. When he steps again to rebel against God, somehow he was able to convince one-third of the angels to rebel with him. Isn't that incredible? Revelations chapter 12, verse 4. And his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. At that moment in time, when Satan rebels and the angels choose, they're either with God or they're with Satan, they're given a destiny-determining decision. Follow God or follow Satan. And once they make that decision in that moment in time, their, their eternity is sealed. And at that moment, we begin to refer to angels and demons. Right? It's a distinction. They're all angels. We either have holy angels or unholy angels, angels or demons. That's where we get that. And here's the challenge. Because of that one moment of decision, their destiny is sealed. So an, a demon will never repent and a demon can never be saved. An angel will never fall or ever rebel against God. That one moment decision sealed their eternity. So we pick the story up. We have Satan. One third of the angels are now demons who have chosen unholy to, to rebel against God. So what is the purpose of their life? What do they do? Well, here is the focus. The Bible tells us the mission of their lives is found, again, in verse 4. Go back to there. And his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them on the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child that he might devour it. I mean, this is really it. Satan in this... In this moment, this is the, the mission of his life to devour his child. Why is this so important? Remember, again, Satan, I believe, was probably present in the garden when the curse and the prophecy was told that the seed of a woman will crush his head or crush his kingdom. And so throughout eternity, or throughout uh, history in this moment, Satan's one focus has been to destroy the child who was born of Israel. Because if I can destroy the child, I will destroy the curse that came down. You see the importance there? So think back through how Satan has moved in the hearts and minds of leaders all throughout history. 
Pharaoh, who was called the great dragon, no surprise, Ezekiel chapter 29, ordered that all male Hebrew infants be murdered in Exodus chapter 2. What was the purpose? And I eliminate the seed that came for the woman. Satan, using King Herod, tried to kill every male baby. Remember the Christmas story, Matthew chapter 2. Once again, the purpose, eliminate the seed that's there. Judas, under the influence of Satan, betrays Jesus. I mean, again, here's what I want you to walk away. Be reminded, there was a singular focus since the fall of Satan to destroy the seed of the woman who was Jesus. And on that day that Jesus dies on the cross, Satan and the demons rejoice because the curse has been broken. The prophecy was not fulfilled and his plan was intact. The problem is, Three days later, the, the ground begins to rumble and the earth begins to shake and the stone is rolled away from the tomb and the Son of God arises. And at that moment, Satan realizes that his fate is sealed and his time is short. And he turns his anger now, not from the seed, from the Son of God, because he realized that plan has been thwarted. He turns his anger now towards the children of of God, the church, and especially, we'll see, the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. So again, go back to our chapter. It spells it out for us. Go to verse 12. Therefore, rejoice, O heaven, you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and the sea, for here it is, the devil comes down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. His anger is turned, and he knows his time. Therefore, now think about why this is important. We see it through history. Think about that. This is why this, the nation of Israel, right? A small country, a, a seemingly insignificant plot of land on, on this entire earth has been the focus of global, global conflict and global, global conquest from the very beginning of human history. Kings, nations, madmen, have hated the people of God so much, and that hatred was placed in them by who? It was placed in Satan himself from the very beginning once his plans were changed. In the Old Testament, think about this. The, the Moabites, the uh, Canaanites, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, they all have tried to destroy Israel. The Persians knocked down the walls. The Romans destroyed and defeated Jerusalem twice. And for 2,000 years, the nation of Israel was scattered all throughout the world in different places. Hitler tried to euthanize an entire race of people in World War II. They were invaded by Egypt and Jordan and Syria in 1947. Anti-Semitism is on a rise like never before in different places. Next week, we're going to see the Antichrist is going to try to bring all of the armies of the world against Jerusalem and Israel at the Battle of Armageddon. Satan himself will try to destroy the holy city at the end of the millennial reign. We'll see that in a couple of weeks. Here's my point. If you ever wondered if the Bible was, was true, I always go back to watch the nation of Israel. Watch how throughout human history there has been a focus of hatred and trying to destroy them. And listen, if they, and I always ask, if there wasn't a spiritual thing involved, how come they continue to be the center point of human history in so many areas? It's such an insignificant place. It gives evidence that there is a spiritual. We battle not simply against flesh and blood. And the holy city remains under attack, 
even today in those things. And so can I just remind you, those countries who stand with them stand with God. It's not a political statement. That's just a biblical statement in the reality of God's unique hand and work on them. So John writes all of these things, and he encourages them. Listen, Revelation 12, we're halfway through the tribulation and the start of all these things. He says, I just want to write these things to encourage you that God has a plan church, she's saying, they say, I understand this is hard. You're being persecuted. People are being killed. Things are tough. The struggles are here. There's hatred towards you. But I want to remind you the bigger picture. There's something greater going on than what you realize. And I want to remind you that you will prevail. Zechariah chapter 13 tells us in the midst of the tribulation that two-thirds of the Jews will be killed during this time. But we're also promised, we look at this way back when, in Revelation chapter 7, that 144,000 Jews will be saved and sealed and protected by God in the midst of the tribulation. And that they and the holy city will be protected by God himself. And so John just says to the church, have hope. I know it's not going to feel that way, but I want to tell you, God's got a plan. And God's protection is there. Go to verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. What is that? Three and a half years. This is the second part of the tribulation, if you remember from our study of the first part of that. The first three and a half years, the Antichrist is going to have a treaty with the nation of Israel. That's how we know the tribulation begins. Three and a half years into that, he's going to break the treaty and to begin to persecute them in a harsh and unbelievable way. Matthew 24 tells us that a remnant of Jews at that time will flee to the mountains of God, and God will provide for them, not only physically, but God will protect them during the time. This is that promise that's there. Many of them, scholars feel this will be the protection. They will flee to the area of Petra, which is the rock foundation in the middle of the wilderness. If you're ever familiar with that unbelievable thing that's there. Verse 15, the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to help the woman and the earth opened up its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. I have no idea what that means. It sounds a little bit like an earthquake. If a flood came, earthquake came, that would not be unusual. God uses earthquake. I think of the flood, God swallowed up the Egyptian army. So basically what he's saying is the earth will come to the defense of the, of, uh, the people at that time to protect them. Verse 17, the dragon began, became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring and on those who keep the commandments of God and to hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Verse 17 tells us this. Satan's anger in his wrath, once he realizes that he cannot defeat Jesus, turns not only to the nation of Israel, but it turns to the people of God. We see that in that phrase, those who keep the commandments of God. That's there. It's gonna make this last part of the tribulation that we'll look at next week so significant and so harsh. So where did this all begin, right? How did we get to this war that started this all out? Interesting. Many feel that the rapture of the church, if you remember at the very start, was the thing that ignited the wrath of Satan. Remember the story of Job? It reminds us that Satan has access to heaven at this point. 
If you remember the story of Job, he looks at Job and then comes to God and says, listen, oh, he's only worships you. He only is obedient to you because of the blessing on his life. Somehow Satan has access to God to have this kind of conversation. Uh, Henry Morris, uh, the Institute of Creation Research, you may be familiar with that, uh, he speculates this, which is really fascinating. After the church is taken to heaven, the rapture, believers will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and have their works examined. On the basis of this judgment, rewards will be given. We studied that. It seems likely that Satan will be present at this event and will accuse the saints, pointing out all of the spots and the wrinkles in the church. The name devil means accuser, and Satan means adversary. Satan stands at the throne of God and fights the saints by accusing them like he did Job. Isn't that interesting? Gives us a little insight. Lord, church is full of hypocrisy. God, these Christians, they say they love you. They don't really live this way. He begins to accuse of all the negative things that he sees. But Jesus Christ, the heavenly advocate, represents the church before God's holy throne. Because Jesus Christ died for us, we can overcome Satan's accusations by the blood of the Lamb. Our salvation is secure, not because of our own works, but because of his finished work at Calvary. How furious Satan will be when the church comes forth in glory, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. When the accuser sees that his tactics have failed, he will become angry and threatens the very peace of heaven. His perspective is simply that when he sees now, I can't only thwart the, the work of Jesus, I can't only accuse the church because by the blood of Jesus we stand as his perfect bride. His anger begins to rally even more and we go to verse seven, potentially that is when the war arose. Now war arose in heaven and Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And at this moment in time, Revelations chapter 12, verse 7, for the very first time, Satan no longer has access to heaven. He's restrained to this earth. Now don't miss this because all of our far side commercials and cartoons always give us a misconception of this, right? Satan is not in hell. In fact, Satan has never been in hell. He's been cast down to this earth. Next week, we're gonna see when Satan is actually cast into hell, don't miss this, the role of Satan in hell is not to torment people. Satan will be the primary tormentee when he is in hell. When he's cast to hell, that is his punishment as well as the demon's punishment also that's there. And again, I can go on and on and spend eight more weeks on these things because there's so much powerful stuff there. But you get the idea where we find is. John Phillips writes this. It kind of gives us a picture as we close out this time. Here's the picture where we are at Revelations chapter 12. Satan is now like a caged lion. Enraged beyond words by the limitations he's now that have been placed upon his freedom. He picks himself up from the dust of the earth. He shakes his fist at the sky and glares around, choking with fury for ways to vent his hatred and his spite upon humankind. Next week, we're gonna pick up that. Because the tribulation and the struggles that come are about to become greater. And John says, I just wanna remind you, church, <laughs> these don't come just from a man. These come from a force that is darker and greater. That's happening here on earth. But here's the great part. At the same time, in heaven, when Satan is cast down, 
And the victory in the battle is won for this moment in time. A celebration begins in heaven. The worshipers begin to worship about the things that have happened because they sing of the salvation that has come to them through the blood of the Lamb. Look at verse 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even on death. And then he says this, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. First John chapter four says this, but you belong to God, my dear children. You have already won a victory over those people because the spirit who lives in you is greater than the spirit who lives in the world. See, Revelations chapter 12, in the midst of all that's going on, John just takes a moment and says, church, my Jewish brothers and sisters to the church of today says, so just be reminded of this, that the light comes after the darkest moments. The next three and a half years are gonna be hard. There's gonna be loss. There'll be death. There'll be persecution. There'll be loneliness and isolation. And you're gonna wonder if God is really there And he says, I just want to take a moment to remind you that there is a bigger picture happening. (laughs) That good will triumph. That evil will be punished. That your God, the creator, sees all things and knows all things and reward all things. And I just need you, just, just don't lose hope. Because you're warring not against flesh and blood. There is a deceiver seeks so he can destroy and tear apart. And I think Revelation 12 is just put there in the middle just to remind us again the story's not done. The great things are about to happen but they're going to come in a little while and I need you to persevere. So we'll see that in the life of this church these seven churches that the letter's written to all that they thought was going to come will happen and it will be worse than they ever dreamed and yet on the end of that there will be an amazing victory and a celebration and a promise of heaven where there is no more tears and there is no more pain and the king will reign once again the book of Revelation is not written to us but it is written for us So the question is, and the hope for you today, is for some of you, that's where you find yourself today, in a moment where you're just like, I'm kind of losing hope, right? I I look around the world, and even in today, the the bloodshed, the the war, the the hatred, the division, the, God, I, I don't see any of this happening. It feels like we're losing. The enemy's winning. Some of you in your own life, there's just, you're in that darkest moment, right? It's just, I feel hopeless. I'm here today. I feel like I'm going through the motions. I I just need some sense that we're going to get here and be okay. May Revelation chapter 20 and 12 inspire you, encourage you that there is a greater picture happening. That God is still in control and things are happening in the heavenlies that we will see over the next few weeks where God interacts 
here on earth. And God wants to say to you today, he wants to meet you where you're at. So be encouraged. Don't let Satan tread on you. Because by the power of the blood of Jesus and through the testimony of our lives, we have and we will experience the victory. Let's pray together. Father, today we thank you for that truth. We thank you for the perspective that you still sit on the throne, that you still are in control and nothing happens that doesn't flow through your sovereign hands. And so Lord, we even confess that today as we look at our world and it just, it feels so broken. And it feels at times so hopeless and it feels so much in despair. It's easy to think that the enemy has won and the story has been written, but may we be reminded Through your blood, there is a victory. Through your love, things will be made right. So Lord, we thank you for that promise even today. May it encourage our hearts and challenge us where we are. In your name we pray, amen. Hey, this morning as we close out our time, we've got a prayer team that's here every Sunday. They're gonna be down front this morning. And you know, we've talked a lot about this Jesus and the power that he has and the victory that comes through him. And you may be sitting here today saying, I, I don't really understand that. <laughs> I don't have this kind of relationship with God that you're talking about. I'd like to know more. Can I just invite you? These folks that are down front would love to share with you how you can experience forgiveness and a relationship with Jesus in a new and a fresh way. Or maybe you're here today and you're just discouraged and it has felt like the devil is treading on me and I am under all this and I just need some hope, some encouragement, maybe somebody to pray with me. Maybe you just need a hug again. This team will be down here. We'd love the privilege of being able to do that with you this morning. Well, this week was crazy. Next week's going to get even crazier uh, because all the things are about to erupt. And uh, so I want to invite you to come back uh, for next week as we hit the next part of that. And I hope your heart will be challenged and encouraged with that. If you're visiting with us this morning, hey, welcome. So glad you're here. If my wife Tammy and I haven't got a chance to meet you, we'll be in the Welcome Center right out there. And we'd love the privilege to be able to do that, put a name on the face. Otherwise, have an amazing week. Live in the victory and the confidence that the devil can't tread on you. And we'll look forward to seeing you back next Sunday. We'll see you then. Thank you for listening to the Lex City Church podcast. If you would like to support ministries of Lex City, visit lexcity.church/give. Please subscribe and follow us on social media at Lex City Church for more encouraging teachings and content.